Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. And today, I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Lokesh Ori on his brand new book, The Kingdom Comes, Ritual Politics and Reflexivity in Mahasu's Himalayan Realm. Welcome to the podcast, Lokesh. Thank you. Thank you, Raj. Thanks for having me there. Oh, our pleasure. Um, it's nice to have a variety of methodologies, and of course, you have an ethnographic uh, project. Why don't you tell us how the project came about, and what is it you study? So, uh, yeah, I'm a student of ritual, and uh, this project deals mainly with uh, with political rituals in a small region uh, in the state of Uttarakhand, in the northern Himalayas in India. So uh, I've looked at a particular group, a social group, which is called the Jansari people. Uh, and Jansar Bawar is a twin mountain region in the state of Uttarakhand. This is towards the north of India in the Himalayas, bordering two states of India, Uttarakhand and Himachal Pradesh. So the communities have been isolated for quite some time. And, uh, and uh, the project came about because uh, I had visited the area as a young student. And then, uh, as, as luck would have it, I visited uh, several times. And uh, during one of my visits, I ran into a professor called uh, Professor William S. Sachs, who is an American professor and, uh, and currently teaches at the University of Heidelberg in Germany. And we started a conversation about uh, whether we could actually do a study of this uh, deity called Mahasu, uh, whom I've described as a divine king in my book. And that led to a proposal for a doctoral fellowship. And, uh, and through that proposal, I was able to uh, to come to the South Asia Institute in the University of Heidelberg and do my fieldwork in the Himalayas and write about uh, about this uh, divine king and his political rituals. So the work essentially deals with how, with what effects political rituals have on social life and whether they, they are indeed powerful or whether they are indeed, they have some agentive power or not. So this, uh, this Mahasu, uh, tell us a bit more about this. Is this related to other deities that are local? Is it related to pan-Indic deities? Who is this Mahasu? Yeah, so uh, a lot of the earlier work that has been done <clears throat> on Mahasu uh, talks about a Mahasu as a form of Shiva. And uh, when I looked at uh, Mahasu as a deity in the temples, I thought that Maybe this is not Shiva, and this is some tribal god that people are worshipping. Uh, but essentially, Mahasu is a deity. He is uh, he's, uh, like most deities in the Himalayas. He is consecrated inside a temple. Uh, and unlike many deities in the plains of India, this deity is also constantly traveling. When I say traveling, uh, it means that the deity is carried in a in a box-like contraption, which is a palanquin. Uh, the palanquin has 
handles which are kept on the shoulders and people go into a trance, they go into a possessed state and then the deity decides to travel. Uh, so they get possessed and the deity moves from one temple to another temple. He moves from one village to another village. And, uh, and uh, then when I did a detailed study, I realized that these were four brother deities. There were four gods and not just one. And they formed like a constellation of deities. There was one deity which was known as the Bodha or the sitting Mahasus. He was sitting right there by the river in a place called Hanul. And then there were two minor deities who were, uh, who were actually traveling on both sides of the river, which is the river Tons. When the river Tons enters the plains of India, it becomes the river Yamuna. And then there was the fourth sibling who was uh, the Chalda. Now the word Chal in Hindi uh, translates into walking. And, and this Mahasu was constantly traveling uh, on both sides of the river, covering a very large area uh, in, in the mountains. And uh, so this whole idea of how a deity can walk up to uh, the devotees, uh, rather than the devotees coming to the temple and doing the tirtha or the pilgrimage, uh, the deity itself is constantly traveling. And the whole idea of a deity that has been traveling for centuries across the mountain ridges, across the mountain passes, intrigued me a lot. And, uh, and, and uh, that uh, formed the basis of the study. And that's why the title, uh, uh, the kingdom coming to the villages and not the disciples or the devotees coming to the dead. So I'm debating which of these two questions to ask next. So I'll ask them both and you can respond. <laughs> However, you please. The first question um, uh, was, you know, what does this this what does Mahasu have to do with with kingship in particular? And the other question was, you know, why is Mahasu always on the go? What's the function here? What's the purpose? Yeah. So, <clears throat> Mahasu, uh, when I first went into the area and looked at the deity uh, as a form of Shiva. Uh, Usually, uh, uh, these, uh, the idea that I had in mind was that this would be a consecrated deity inside a temple, a deity that people would pray to, or a deity that people would worship ritually. And that, that was my intention of studying the rituals that, uh, 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 that people perform in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening. But gradually I realized that the deities were constantly on the move. And then the deities were not just performing a ritual function where people were coming and worshipping them, but a lot of the deities were in fact coming, a lot of the people were in fact coming to the deities seeking justice. They were also coming uh, with the produce of the land and in fact uh, uh, there was, there was. Uh, I realized that there was a very formalized system of taxation. I also realized that there was an entire officialdom that surrounded uh, the deity because the de deity appointed a minister. He appointed a person who would keep the records, the accounts. Then there were people who would organize the deity processions. Uh, so uh, gradually. I began to realize that this deity was also 
a king. He was uh, he was also a figurehead that would uh, dispense justice. He was also a figurehead who would charge taxes from the people. He would also he was also a figurehead that would own land and give it away uh, on rent for people to uh, to grow crops on. So uh, this whole uh, idea of uh, you know uh, the whole idea was very tantalizing to me that here was an institution that could be looked at as a precursor of human kingship. That here was an idol kept inside a shrine uh, who was treated as a king by the entire community and uh, and performed a lot of political functions that uh, that that were really uh, that were later on acquired by human kings. So, uh, so to my mind, this is, uh, and I mentioned it in the book as well, that this is uh, an institution that is perhaps older than the institution of human kingship. And that's why I generally refer to Mahasu as a divine king. So he's, uh, even though it's a non-human agent, even though it's, a, uh, it's, a, it's just an object kept inside a temple, but it has an agentive power. It is dispensing justice. It is levying taxes. It is giving punishments to people who don't conform with the social system, and uh, also transacts power. And so, just to confirm for our, our, our listeners, the agentive aspect of the deity is it implicated in the actions of actual human rulers? What is the relationship between those who hold power in a social sense and uh, the power of the deity? Um, yes. So uh, when we look at the divine kingship of Mahasu, uh, I say that the rituals of, uh, of the divine king are manifest in two ways. Uh, they are manifest in the rituals of processions. So it is the deity that is processing, that is traveling from uh, one one uh, mountain to another mountain, from one village to another village, and it also manifests in the form of possessions. So the deities uh, appoint their oracles. So there are oracles that have to go. The humans have from a particular caste who have to go through a particular uh, test uh, to uh, authenticate that their possess- uh, possession is genuine. So they get possessed by the deity and they speak to, uh, so the deity in fact speaks through a human uh, oracle and the oracle pronounces uh, 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 judgments and he pronounces the whole, uh, the whole kingship uh, idea before the people. Uh, so it is manifest through humans who are again temple officials who act as oracles, people come and consult them, they get possessed by the deities, and uh, uh, the deity answers people's questions. What was your object of study? What was your data? What were you looking at? So uh, my object of study was to understand, uh, one, the, the, the historical process, that whether this was actually uh, a system that was a precursor of the several human kingships that we find in the Himalayas. So the Himalayas are dotted with these uh, 
uh, these regions, which uh, which can be described as little kingdoms. So there were little kingdoms uh, uh, in uh, situated in the various pockets in the Himalayas, in Himachal Pradesh, and Uttarakhand. So I was looking at uh, at these kingdoms. A lot of them were ruled by humans, and some of them, which were more isolated, which were more remote in their location, were also ruled by these non-human agents or the divine kings, as I call them. So that was one of the objectives. And then I was looking at the, uh, the whole issue of mobility, that when these uh, processions moved, when these divine kings like Mahasu traveled from one village to another village, when they traveled from uh, one part of the country to another part of the country, did that generate any political power? And then I also looked at the entire region uh, from the point of view of this whole issue of the Jansaris being uh, classified as a tribe, while they were in fact a Hindu caste society. And so I looked at the whole issue and compared the tribe and caste ideas. I also looked at animal sacrifice. Uh, but uh, I mean, the underlying uh, uh, question that I always uh, dealt with was this whole idea of uh, modernity, that is modernity a teleological process? Is it a step-by-step -step process or whether this isolated community which is so far removed from our notions of what a modern world would look like, uh, have they also uh, adapted to modernity uh, and, and whether this modernity is different from the modernity that Marx or Weber talked about, uh, whether they fit into the Indian ideas of a democratic state while also adhering to the rituals of the uh, of divine kingship. So it was a whole basket of ideas that I looked at. Uh, but the underlying issue was this debate on modernity and uh, whether the rituals actually did generate any political power for the people who practiced them. It's an intriguing and important line of inquiry. What do you conclude or otherwise put? What would you say is the key takeaway of the research? So, uh, yes, so I looked at... Uh, looked at various periods uh, from history. I looked at the folklore uh, in great detail. Uh, I, so in every temple in, where Mahasu is consecrated as a deity, there are these uh, drummers. There are a group of drummers who are called the Bajkis. They recite the folklore and they are considered the repositories of uh, the deity's uh, knowledge. So I recorded a lot of the folklore from the Bajkis, from the elderly Bajkis who still remember a lot of it. Then I looked at a lot of the colonial records. I looked at uh, these officers uh, who came in for the first time in the region and had to deal with a non-human king, had to deal with a non-human agent. So the, all over the Himalayas, the British followed a policy of uh, you know, capturing the territory and then returning the territory to the to uh, to the human kings. But here was a 
a non-human agent and how did the British deal with the non-human agent. And I was, I was fortunate to find uh, records uh, from the India office records in the British Library of two officers almost a century apart who were, who were trying to comprehend the whole institution of uh, a divine king as, uh, and dealing with Mahasu. And then, of course, I looked at the processes in the modern context. So the key takeaway was that, uh, one, uh, uh, that uh, the, the way we look at modernity and we, we uh, normally we say that if, uh, you know, if uh, tourism enters a place, education comes in, uh, people, uh, technology enters our lives, and then people uh, will turn modern and they will uh, stop uh, performing the rituals or, uh, or you know, they will turn away from what we generally describe as uh, the primordial loyalties of caste and of, uh, of the ritual. Uh, so, uh, which did not hold true for, for the John Saris, for the community that I was uh, studying, because here uh, people did have the mobile phones, they did have the technology, they did have the education, all those things that we would generally associate with a modern uh, lifestyle. And yet, the rituals were being performed with even greater intensity. Uh, so all the wealth, all the development as we uh, describe it in India was actually, uh, you know, uh, it was, it was um, making these primordial loyalties towards caste, towards the divine king, even stronger. So that was uh, one key takeaway from the research which showed very clearly that uh, that uh, that every social group is uh, modernizing within its own matrix of modernity and there is not just one modernity but every social group or uh, groups of people identify with modernity in their own in their own ways so uh, now in terms of this um preservation of both, um, or integration of tradition and modernity. Do you feel that there's something particular about this context which supports that? Or do you feel that this case study is perhaps uh, uh, analogous to what happens in many other contexts in Indian religions? In Indian religion, uh, you know, the one of the um, one of the key ideas that people talk about is the whole idea of Sanskritization, that there is this one, uh, you know, Hindu pantheon that is being uh, imposed on uh, societies which have, uh, which have been isolated, but which have been stable and, uh, and have kind of lived with their own practices and rituals over the centuries. So in, in in the case of Mahasu, I found that uh, that uh, the social group was very keen to incorporate the ideas of Sanskritization, but then the deities also stuck on to their uh, to to their own cultural practices, and uh, like for instance uh, in, in the whole issue of animal sacrifice. So 
the animal the issue of animal sacrifice is a very hotly debated issue within the Jansari community. Uh, this is an agro-pastoral society for them. The most precious commodity that they can offer to their deity is goats. So traditionally, in all the Mahasu temples, people bring in goats to be sacrificed. And now there are animal rights groups that are constantly saying that this is brutality and this needs to change. And we cannot uh, sacrifice goats at every festival uh, every day in the temples. So there has to be a ban on animal sacrifice. So on, on the one side, I found that the, the community was uh, keen to embrace uh, the processes of Sanskritization. But then the deities were also very adamant that, uh, that this is our traditional knowledge, that uh, consuming uh, goats is our traditional knowledge and it, therefore it should not change. So at such moments, the, com the community is forced to come together. They are forced to debate the question. Uh, very, very uh, intensely. And uh, so I, I describe it as an argue till you drop model. Uh, the, continue, uh, the community continues to argue about these ideas wherever there is a clash between modernity and uh, the traditional systems. And then the deity uh, leaves it onto the community to, uh, to take a final call on what needs to be done. So there are temples where I found that animal sacrifice has been done away with. There are temples where I found that, uh, uh, that there, there is a compromise. That they say that, okay, this is our traditional knowledge. We will do the animal sacrifice, but we, we will do it away from the public view. Uh, so uh, so every, every pocket and every social group uh, is is finding its own way through this uh, through this maze of modernity, and and that's why I say that this modernity within the Mahasu uh, social group has its own uh, you know differentiated logic, and, and people are embracing it in their own special ways. I was hoping we could um, talk a little bit about the agency of the deity, its its wants, needs, its voice. Um, can we talk a little bit about the, 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 the vetting process of someone who um, is possessed, understood to be possessed, or claims to be possessed? Is there a vetting process? Uh, um, are there those uh, who are more authentically possessed than others? You know, can you tell us a bit about this? Yeah, so, uh, so there are two kinds of possessions. There is a possession where... Uh, Mahasu is said to possess an individual, uh, and uh, and so these individuals they come usually they come from the higher castes, from the Rajput and the Brahmin. Very rarely Brahmin, but generally Rajput castes, and uh, and so uh, these are usually people. They are these are usually young lads who are uh, who are employed in in the urban areas or even employed abroad. And, and somehow they will get uh, they will get this calling that the deity is possessing them. So I've met several, I've interviewed several. Uh, like there was this one guy who was working in the navy, uh, one person from who was who had already migrated to Dubai, and one fine day got this calling that uh, 
that Mahasu is creating some trouble in his life. So people are uh, people around him were falling sick. They were dying. There was there were accidents in the home, and uh, it was generally interpreted as a calling from the divine king, which brought which brings these people, which brings these young men. So it's usually men who get possessed, um, and brings these young men to the to the village, and then uh, and then when they display a possession, so you display a possession in a particular habitus. You, your body shakes in a particular way, your eyes roll up, uh, your hands kind of get jointed together and start shaking. So uh, all, all, all these uh, are indications of a possession happening. Uh, and uh, when, when you do feel that you're getting possessed by the deity, uh, then, then the possession has to be uh, displayed before some of the elderly uh, oracles of the deity. So uh, these oracles are called Malis, and, and, and you have to come before the Malis who are already experienced, who are already, you know, who have been doing the possession thing for several years. And then the elderly Malis will pronounce whether the possession is authentic or not. And once uh, they agree that a particular person's position is authentic, then he's authorized to sit in the temple courtyard and people come um, come to consult uh, that person. So, uh, and, and, you know, different oracles, different malis have different reputations. So a person who is more authentic will get more consultations. He will get, he will earn more and more people will... Uh, so it's it's like uh, you do your basic training and then uh, your agency uh, grows and grows. If what you pronounce proves efficacious for for the people who come to consult, and for those who are deemed authentically possessed by the deity and whom people consult, what do these consultations look like? So uh, these consultations are generally, uh, uh, they are like public interrogations. Uh, usually the messenger from the oracle, like one person comes and uh, asks the oracle for, uh, for a consultation, then the oracle will send out a messenger to the entire clan. So the entire clan has to uh, present themselves before the temple once a consultation is called for. So usually it's an extended family, brothers, uncles, aunts. Uh, very few people have the courage to refuse uh, a message, the message from the temple. And, and they actually walk uh, several kilometers to reach the temple on the appointed day. And uh, so whatever the reason, uh, whatever the complaint that the person uh, makes to the oracle, he Oracle enters into a state of possession and starts questioning uh, the person who has complained and also begins to question other members of the family. So usually people come to the oracles because there is family discord, because, uh, because people have been falling sick or the crops have not been good. So there can be several reasons. Uh, 
and uh, and and because it's a public interrogation and the whole clan is sitting and watching uh, about uh, listening to the answers of the clan to the questions of the oracle uh, they are uh, uh, so the reasons for discord the reasons for the family quarrels the the reasons for uh, people falling sick are usually uh, pushed out from within the family. So uh, there might be, you know, some one individual dissatisfied with what the others are doing, and he might have put a curse on on the rest of the family, and then this person will be asked to remove the curse, and and then things get back to normal. So. Uh, uh, it works on the belief system. It works on a very a strong uh, belief in the entire system, and uh, and and I have documented hundreds of cases uh, where where the system has proved to be efficacious, where the system has brought in the raid. It has ended the discord. It has uh, it has brought back the crops, or it has you know. Uh, people have uh, people usually confess uh, that that it, that they were the reasons why such and such problem cropped up within the family, and that they would make amends. So the agentic power of the deity is quite strong because uh, because he's able to one get all the clan members together uh, under his own tutelage, and two. Uh, uh, to uh, people are uh, people are too scared to tell lies in the presence of the deity, in the presence of uh, when they're sitting in the temple courtyard. Fascinating. Was there anything else about the book or the the research that you wanted to share? Yeah, I was. Uh, so as I said earlier, I was quite fortunate to have uh, to have uh, got these records from uh, from. The British Library. Mm-hmm. These were journals of two uh, two British officers. The first one was Emerson, who came into the uh, Dune Valley in 1815 after the end of the Anglo-Gurkha War. So he was one of the earlier officers. And and uh, when you look at his journal entries, and I think I was uh, probably the first person who had ever. Uh, requested for this journal at the at the British Library because I did not find any records in the in the earlier works uh, mentioning these journals and and frankly even I didn't know that they existed until I started fishing through the uh, through the British Library India office records so uh, I was I was quite fortunate to read his dispatches uh, where he is trying to comprehend he's trying to empathize with Mahasu, which kind of gave me a very clear uh, uh, idea because the Mahasu folklore also dealt with the Mughals. It also talks about Mahasu's interactions with the Mughals and how the Mughals also had to uh, accept the sovereignty of the divine king. But that is in the realm of folklore. You do not have any written records of, of what transpired there, but uh, people recite these uh, 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 these songs, and and you can hear them. Uh, so it it gave me a, a good 
comparative uh, view of uh, what was happening during the colonial times and what would have actually transpired in, in the Mughal times. And then uh, around 1911, almost a century after Young had written his journals, I, I was able to read the records of another British officer called Emerson, who, who has written an ethnographic account of the region, where I uh, realized that uh, between Young and Emerson, there was this uh, very subtle shift in the community from an agro-pastoral society to a more agrarian society. So there must have been earlier deities who were uh, deities of the, uh, the agro-pastoralist community, of the shepherds. So the, the community was occupationally essentially a, a, a shepherd community. And then agriculture is entering into the system. and uh, and And with it, the processes of Sanskritization and with it, the processes of transformation that Mahasu coming in from somewhere, coming in from Kashmir, as the folklore tells us, transforming the society from pastoralist society to a, a more agrarian society. People are getting more settled. Mahasu is uh, defeating, as a divine king, he's defeating all the uh, smaller tribal gods and uh, and establishing himself as a sovereign so that that entire documenting that entire process was uh, quite fascinating for me and i don't think there has been uh, uh, there have been many other works that have uh, that have been able to uh, uh, to document this uh, transformation from folklore to the early British records, to the later colonial records, and then to what is happening in the present times in India. Great. Well, thank you very much for speaking with us today about your work. Thank you. Thanks for having me. For those listening, we have been speaking with Dr. Lokesh Ori on his new publication, The Kingdom Comes, Virtual Politics and Reflexivity in Mahasu's Himalayan Realm. Until next time, stay safe, keep reading, keep listening, and uh, perhaps keep contemplating the agency of uh, the deities. Take care. <laughs>